doesn't mean be selfish. I was only seeking perfection. You've mistaken one for love. You let your ego get the best of you. That's an operatic depiction of a dark moment in the life of the iconic visionary Steve Jobs, the moment when he was forced out of his own company, Apple. The life of Steve Jobs is the inspiration for a new opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. And uh, as you can imagine, a complex figure like Jobs provided endless inspiration for the composer Mason Bates and also for the librettist Mark Campbell. I think any writer has to love the person they're writing about, even if it's Cruella de Vil, you know? <laughs> You have to find some way to agree with them on something. And with Steve Jobs, I have to say, I entered into this project going, God, but he was like a jerk to people. He did terrible things to people. But then the more I read about him, I just started thinking, okay, there was something about him that was counter-cultural. Uh, you know, he was a hippie. And when I read that he did acid, and that he did acid in an apple orchard, of all ironic things, and that he reported hearing music one time. I said, okay, there's a, there's, a, there's a scene that I want in this opera because of that. Music, of course, you know, it's an opera. If there's a reference to music, I'll take it. Um, another scene was, was learning about how he and Waz became what are called phone freaks, where they could make international phone calls for free by duplicating the tones on a Ma Bell system. And I really liked that because it showed that he was counter-corporate as well. And that whole duet between the two of them where they call, um, they actually call the Vatican. This really happened. They called the Vatican and um, Steve Wozniak impersonated Henry Kissinger saying he was canceling a meeting. That was hilarious to me. I mean, I'm, I happen to like practical jokes a great deal. All my friends will tell you that. But this was like, this was so fun. And... Um, the revolution of Steve Jobs is not just about the revolution of technology. It refers to the revolution that Steve Jobs takes in this opera, where he goes full circle and looks at the events in his life and the people in his life who shaped him. That's the librettist Mark Campbell talking about how he set this life, this iconic life of Steve Jobs. I mean, if you can imagine condensing all of that into a libretto, and I suppose he could have worked from the biography of Steve Jobs and kind of librettized that, but he made a very interesting decision, and that was to rather focus on episodes in the life of Steve Jobs, and they are not told in a linear fashion. In fact, there's a kind of dreamlike quality in this opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, and we're going to stay true to that on the program today. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and this new opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, is the subject of the program today. It was recently premiered at the Santa Fe Opera. We have audio from the production at Santa Fe, a little bit of audio from that, that has not actually been released. It will not be available to most people for another year, at least. So it was great we were able to get that. And we also have some exclusive audio from a workshop of the opera in San Francisco and another workshop at the Guggenheim in New York. So we can give you a pretty good sense of the opera, the revolution of Steve Jobs. Again, Mark Campbell was talking about this episodic treatment of the life of Steve Jobs. Let's jump right to one of those episodes that he was telling us about, the Ma Bell duet scene. Here are Edward Parks as Steve Jobs and Otagawa Garrett Sorensen as Steve Wozniak. Ma Bell was just taking down Ma Bell was just screwed over 
That's a fun scene from the life of Steve Jobs as depicted in operatic fashion. We heard Edward Parks as Steve Jobs singing alongside Odegawa Garrett Sorensen, and they're on the stage of the Santa Fe Opera, so we're hearing the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra conducted by Michael Christie. And what a fun scene. This is so different, I guess, than my image of Steve Jobs. I don't know about you, but when you say the name Steve Jobs, I think of a guy in a black turtleneck launching some revolutionary product, uh, and I think of him a little bit as a cold figure as well, uh, pretty austere, domineering. And here he is uh, being depicted as, as a young man, uh, impish, full of mischief, obviously already bright. They've learned how to hack the Ma Bell phone system and, and, and trick the international dialing system so they can make free international calls. And uh, they can call anybody in the world. Uh, who do they call? They call the Vatican. And they, they pull this prank. They pretend to be Henry Kissinger. This is one of the things about the opera that really appeals to me is it does showcase different aspects of Steve Jobs' character. And if he does want up as a domineering persona, and by all accounts he did, perhaps it was a journey, because in this particular scene, he's not there yet. Well, again, the audio that we're featuring on the program today is either from the Santa Fe Opera, an actual production, or from a workshop in San Francisco, and we were able to talk with Mason Bates, the composer, about his inspiration, and especially about how he handled all the different characters in Jobs' life. You know, in the old days, like Wagner's days, everybody would have a leitmotif, which is a theme, and that was a real innovation in opera. This piece has more of a sound world. What's the difference between those two things? Well, in this piece, when you have, say, Kobun, the spiritual advisor of Steve Jobs, you have not only a kind of theme in the alto flute, which sounds like a shakuhachi, and the processed prayer bowls and Tibetan gongs, but you have a whole soundscape that comes with it in the electronics. And that contrasts 
markedly with Steve Jobs' sound world, which is this busy acoustic picking on the guitar, Quicksilver, electronica, because he had a soul that wasn't quite at rest until his final days. Or his wife, Laureen, who had this oceanic, soulful strings. And so when Steve Jobs is finally broken down by his wife to understand the true nature of human connection, his music slows down. The idea of the leitmotif, as we just heard composer Mason Bates say, goes back to Wagner. He's done it in a very different way, though. Instead of an actual melody or motive for each character, we have an entire sound world. I think it's a really interesting way to handle it. Let's jump right into the sound world of Kobun Chino. This was the Japanese Buddhist mentor for Steve Jobs for many, many years, a person that was a central figure in uh, the life of Steve Jobs and also in this opera because he's kind of, a, he's kind of used here as a framing device. He, he appears in the flesh but also as, as a ghostly presence throughout the opera. We're going to hear now a scene in which Kobun is, is dead. He's passed away, but he appears in Steve's studio and they have a conversation about mortality. At this point, uh, Steve Jobs has been diagnosed with a cancer that will ultimately kill him. Here are Edward Parks as Steve Jobs and Wei Wu as Kobun Chino from the stage at the Santa Fe Opera Festival, Michael Christie conducting the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra. circle 
That's an excerpt from scene three of the new opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, by composer Mason Bates. And we're hearing what he was talking about, this idea of each character having his or her own sound world. In this case, the sound world is Kobun Chino, the Japanese Buddhist mentor of Steve Jobs. And uh, what what an interesting sound world that Mason has conjured up here with the Japanese temple bells. It's a very otherworldly sound, which is appropriate because in this scene, Kobun Chino has already passed away and he's appearing to Steve Jobs as, as as a ghost, as a memory, as some kind of uh, otherworldly presence. And they're having this conversation about mortality. And to me, it's a really poignant scene because, uh, as you may know, when, when Steve Jobs was first diagnosed with cancer, he, he didn't want to accept it. He, he walled it off and pretended for several years, for, for two or three years, that it wasn't happening. And this is the scene where he's really kind of coming to terms with his own mortality. We heard Edward Parks there as Steve Jobs and Wei Wu as Kobun Chino. And we heard the orchestra of the Santa Fe Opera led by Michael Christie, and uh, I should also point out that the composer, Mason Bates, was himself seated in the orchestra, as he so often is at his premieres, and he was working the electronics. I'm featuring the opera on the program today, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, just premiered at Santa Fe, and we've got some exclusive audio for you, including the track I'm about to play right now from the San Francisco workshop before the opera was premiered. This is the very beginning of the opera. This is the scene where Paul Jobs, Steve's father, decides that young Steve needs a workspace, and he decides that he can have the garage. And as you probably know, it became an iconic (laughs) garage indeed. This is where Apple was in fact formed years later. Here are Kelly Mark Graff as Paul Jobs and Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. This is from the San Francisco Workshop. And we're also going to hear James Moore, guitars, Robert Twayton as pianist, and Mason Bates himself on electronica. Still it 
The year is 1965 in Cupertino, California, and young Steve Jobs has just been given his first workspace by his father, Paul Jobs. It is, in fact, a garage in their home, a garage that will become iconic indeed, the garage in which he created Apple. Kelly Mark Graff is playing the role of Paul Jobs, and we're hearing Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. We're also hearing the guitars of James Moore. The sound world of, of uh, Steve Jobs here is being conjured up by electric guitars. And we're hearing pianist Robert Twayton and Mason Bates himself on electronica. Let's go from 1965. We're going to jump up to 1974 in an apple orchard near Los Altos in California. And we heard Mark Campbell talking about this a little bit, but Steve Jobs uh, was a bit of a hippie at this time in his life. And uh, he and a girlfriend, Chris Ann, they drop acid in an apple orchard, uh, which uh, again, you know, the, the, the uh, imagery there, the idea, maybe this is where he got the idea to call his company Apple. At any rate, he also, he hallucinates and he hears Bach. And what Mason has done with this musically, I think is fascinating. So we're going to hear audio of this scene. This is also from the San Francisco workshop. So this is not fully staged. And we're going to hear Jessica Jones in the role of Chris Ann Brennan, the girlfriend of Steve Jobs. We're going to hear Edward Parks again. And we'll also hear Robert Twayton, Mason Bates, and James Moore. I still don't feel anything. It's pure purple microdot. Give it My life is over.
Another operatic scene in the young life of Steve Jobs. There's actually a lot of young Steve Jobs in this opera by Mason Bates, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, that recently premiered at the Santa Fe Opera Festival. And I really like this. I like this Steve Jobs. He's already a very intense guy. I mean, he's already charismatic. He's not quite as confident as he'll become. He's looking for something. I think he'll find it later with Japanese Buddhism. And we have a great moment in the opera a little bit later in the program where he's in a calligraphy class. And he first kind of gets this idea of the aesthetic that he wants, these clean lines, the aesthetic that will define so much of Apple. But at this moment, he's in, of all places, an apple orchard. <laughs> and so he's still very much in this kind of questing, seeking phase of his life. Jessica Jones was playing the role of Chris Ann Brennan, and we heard Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. We also heard musical accompaniment by Robert Twayton, Mason Bates, and James Moore. Steve Jobs is complex. This is a person who vastly improved the lives of an immeasurable number of people, and yet by all accounts was a very, very difficult person. And I think that dichotomy, that conflict that lies at the heart of the character of Steve Jobs was certainly one of the things that fascinated Mason Bates and that he wanted to capture in this opera. But he was also interested in the idea that there might have been a redemptive influence on Jobs as well. I love the role of Laureen, his wife. Uh, you know, she is the person who stood by him for many years and saw the things he was able to create and saw the things he was able to destroy, you know, people, careers, lives, and um, had children with him and helped him understand not only the value of connection with his own family, but also um, with people outside of her family, you know, with the daughter of his previous girlfriend. And... Um, She's a woman in her own right who has strong beliefs and uh, a real passion for, as it turns out, education and philanthropy. And um, that role, that character, has been really important in the examination of the story. Mason Bates talking about, uh, yeah, this conflict that's at the heart of this opera, at the heart of the character of Steve Jobs. Here they're presenting Lorene Jobs as kind of a redemptive influence upon Steve Jobs, which is a, a controversial stance. Not everybody agrees that that's the case. At any rate, they've chosen to do it, and, and it does add some heart to the opera, I think, especially in the scene I'm going to play right now. This is 2007, Cupertino. Steve Jobs has just announced a, a revolutionary new product, as he was wont to do, <laughs> and he comes straight from the glare of the lights, the roar of the crowd. I mean, from that incredible energy, he comes back into his office all by himself, just he and his wife, and he's sick. He, he knows he's sick. He's already faced up to his mortality. We heard that scene between he and his mentor where he kind of comes to terms with his mortality, and he has this very intimate scene with his wife. This audio is again from the San Francisco workshop, and we're going to hear Edward Parks as Steve Jobs and Sarah Coit as Lorene Powell Jobs. Thank you. 
It's a poignant scene where in the corporate offices in Cupertino, directly after Steve Jobs launches a new product to the world, one of those iconic moments in Apple. We all picture Steve Jobs in the black turtleneck uh, in later years, like 2007, increasingly emaciated, but still there, still with that charisma, launching some product we know is going to revolutionize our lives. But here we're, we're immediately after that. He knows he's sick. He's with his wife, Laureen. And, and the first thing she says to him is, hey, stranger, nice work. He's a little bit defensive. Only nice. Sales are already through the roof. And she says, that's good, because God knows we really need more money. <laughs> I love that scene. And this charge dynamic between them where she's, at least, again, as presented by Mason Bates and Mark Campbell, because it is a bit of a controversial stance, but, but she's trying to humanize him here. I mean, he, he's so, at this point, devoted to these products, to Apple. Uh, he really wants to go as far as he can. And, and she, in this scene, is bringing him back, reminding him that he's human, especially now at, at what we know is the end of his life. I'm going to jump right before that scene. We're actually going to do these out of order, partly because the opera is told episodically, but partly because I think it's interesting to go from that intimate scene. We're going to go to the scene right before that. This is the overture of the opera and scene one where he's launching that product. Feel the energy. This is really, really well done. Uh, Here is the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra conducted by Michael Christie, and we're going to hear Edward Parks as Steve Jobs with the Santa Fe Opera Chorus.
What exciting music, conjuring up one of the most exciting events, really, of the early 2000s, and that was a, a product launch by Apple. I know we all remember them. They were they were iconic. Everybody would watch. Uh, Steve Jobs would come out in his black turtleneck. E- even when he was looking sick in the later years, there was so much excitement in the air, in the room, as, as, as we heard about a new product that was going to revolutionize our lives. And I really think Mason Bates captured that perfectly well in the music. We heard there Edward Parks as Steve Jobs performing alongside the Santa Fe Opera Chorus and with the orchestra as well, conducted by Michael Christie. Really, really exciting moment, and that is actual audio from the Santa Fe production. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers, and I'm really excited today to have exclusive audio for you of the new opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. To subscribe to our podcast for streaming versions of this and all previous episodes, or if you'd like a complete playlist of what we played on the program today, you can visit us at relevanttones.com. couldn't help myself. I just had to return to that scene. This is the product launch scene, scene one, right after the overture of the opera. And I wanted to return to it for many reasons, uh, not least of which is I think that Mason Bates handled it really well. The music is perfect. It's everything that it should be. It's it's effervescent. It's, it's confident, like Steve Jobs himself. And also because I think that if you're a composer and you're going to set the life of Steve Jobs in an opera, 
uh, boy, I know I personally would be uh, would be frightened of this scene. <laughs> I mean, this is the iconic image of Apple, those product launches, Steve Jobs coming out and, you know, in a black turtleneck and with absolute conviction telling you that what he's holding in his hand is going to change your life. And of course it did. I mean, you know you have to get that right. And I think that they did. Like I said, I really think the music is perfect. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene. But there's also this really interesting conflict. It's not ever stated in the opera. It's certainly not stated in this scene. I mean, Steve Jobs here is his confidence himself, uh, you know, kind of hawking this product that will change everyone's life. He's saying this device that he holds in his hand will do everything that you need it to do. But as we know, right after that, he goes back uh, with his wife and has this intimate scene where, where he's talking about mortality and death. And also, as we know, he had a Japanese Buddhist mentor, uh, Kobunchino, who kind of hovers over the opera as a framing device, is always there in the background. To me, at least, this says that no matter how far we get with technology, we're always going to need spirituality. It's a very interesting conflict in the life of Steve Jobs, a very interesting conflict in the opera, and that alongside the obvious conflict of uh, the, the corporatism versus the kind of hippie nature that Steve Jobs had, at least in, in young life, was of immense interest to Mark Campbell, the librettist. I have many friends, you know, my, my more socialist friends will say, why are you writing an opera about that capitalist jerk? And I say, because he influenced our lives so greatly. I mean, and, and I even say, reach in your pocket. I'll bet you have an iPhone there. Well, yeah, I do. And I'll bet everyone in this restaurant, you know, has an iPhone or some version of it. And um, the, his influence is undeniable. So he must have done something right. And, and that was my job, is to make sure that the audience sees the monster he could be, but also understands the man he was. It's one of my favorite parts of our interview with Mark Campbell, where he's talking about uh, Steve Jobs. And, and, and by this point, I mean, Steve Jobs has been dead uh, for a few years, and the image has really changed. And, and his friends are saying, why are you writing an opera about this guy? You're kind of betraying us. He's, he's such a capitalist. Uh, but, but it wasn't always that way, as we heard earlier in the opera. There, there is this conflict of Steve Jobs as a guy who really, I think, genuinely wanted to change the world. And then at one point, uh, really got seduced by, by the power and, and, and making money. But I, th I think also he really had this design aesthetic. I mean, a lot of designers do. They, they, they want to improve what's around them. And, and nothing frustrated Steve Jobs more, I think, than the messy realities of everyday life. But again, I do also think there's this other conflict between spirituality and technology that's never stated in the opera uh, at all, but, but is there hovering as a kind of ghost. And I think that leads us beautifully into our next scene. Now, bear with me, because you've heard some of this music before. We're going to go back to scene three, where the ghost of Kobunchino comes in and, and Steve acknowledges his mortality. Kobunchino talks about, we come from nothing, we go back to nothing. But that, what we heard before, was from the Santa Fe stage. This is now going to be from the San Francisco workshop, and I'm going to play it again, not only to hear the difference between the orchestrations now in a reduction, but also because it transitions beautifully into scene four, 1973, Reed College, Oregon. Steve Jobs takes his first calligraphy class, and this is where he gets the Japanese predilection for clean lines. This would define so much of Apple's aesthetic. This is also where he gets interested in spirituality. Here are Wei Wu as Kobunchino and Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. They're accompanied on the San Francisco stage by Robert Twayton, Mason Bates, and James Moore. What are you doing here? I'm your spiritual mentor. I'm always around. 
I said in that speech years ago. I don't know. You said so many foolish things. You can't connect the dots going forwards. You can only connect them going backwards. Pretty good. Must have gotten that from me. Quite a sky, the sky of my youth. Quite a sun, always loveliest when he sleeps. It's a really interesting scene in the opera. We heard scene three going into scene four. Kobuncino comes to Steve Jobs in 2007, the ghost of Kobuncino, I should say, and, and uh, finally gets him to understand that, that he's going to die, that this cancer is going to get him. This is the way that it is, and this is the way that it is for all people, and that he can't design it away like, like he could with a product. It's a fascinating moment to me, and I love the way they transition from that into the 1970s when he's a student and he takes his first colored 
Society class. And this is something that happens a lot in the opera. There, there are uh, these kinds of uh, transitions or, or, or like the camera pulls back a little bit on the scene and we're in one place and then suddenly we're in another and there are these juxtapositions also between Steve Jobs as his controlling figure. I mean, he's so upset. He even critiques his own memorial service. <laughs> he himself is a ghost critiquing his memorial service at the end of the opera, which I love. Uh, but this idea of him as a domineering figure, as somebody who thinks he can control everything around him, and then this final acceptance that, that he can't. Uh, he can't control e- even his own ability to continue to exist. Uh, it's a beautiful scene. I think they did really well. I think they did a really nice job with it. And the audio that we heard is live uh, from a workshop in San Francisco. We heard Edward Parks as Steve Jobs and Wei Wu as Kobunchino. They're being accompanied by Robert Twayton, Mason Bates, and James Moore. Well, as I mentioned, the opera ends with Steve Jobs' memorial service, and uh, there's a lot of discussion about his legacy. Uh, There's there's a part where Lorraine kind of uh, acknowledges that he was a difficult man, (laughs) that he won't be uh, remembered as as an easygoing person (laughs) by any means, Uh, but but he'll be remembered for his impact on society. And I think it's very well treated, very well handled in the opera, but I'm not going to play it. I'm going to end the program today in a little bit of a different way. We're going to talk uh, about the relationship between Steve Jobs and Loreen, because that was certainly something that Mason Bates felt very strongly about. Well, Steve Jobs, to me, had two sides, two charges, kind of positive charge, charismatic. I mean, he could make people believe the sky was purple and creative and a negative charge. He was a hard-driving boss. He could be quite cold with people. And... Um, the ground between those two charges was his wife, Lorene, who was able to help him you know, reconcile those differences. So to me, Steve Jobs is not just like a you know, mogul. We have to remember, he started as a kind of countercultural figure who did acid in California, who named his company after an apple orchard where he was like hanging out with his hippie girlfriend. He absolutely was a human being. And I do think that this treatment of his life is a deeper examination of his emotional journey than anything we've had. That's Mason Bates talking about Lorraine Powell Jobs as, as a character here in his opera, because at least for Mason, and I think for Mark Campbell as well, the librettist, she is this figure in the opera. If anybody could humanize Steve Jobs, it's her. I mean, if anybody could get him to just enjoy a bowl of macaroni and cheese or something, something just really, really basic like that, it's her. I, I don't think it's a spiritual mentor, Kobunchino, who is much more focused on getting him to kind of relinquish control, to understand that, that, that he can't control everything. You know, when you're just talking about being human and being nice to your dinner guests. If anybody could get him, to, uh, him, Steve Jobs, to do that, it would have been Lorraine Powell Jobs. When you're talking about these human things like, you know, just being nice to the dinner guests that your wife brought over, if anybody could get Steve Jobs to be human on that level, it was Lorraine Jobs. And so, at least in the opera, she's an important character because, again, in this opera, at least, she's presented as somewhat of a redemptive character. I'm going to play two sides of the relationship now between Steve Jobs and Lorene Powell Jobs. Uh, one is when they first meet. And of course, uh, when a relationship first gets started, it's full of optimism. It's full of fun. This is where Steve meets Lorene. And then we're going to, that's only two minutes long. It's only two minutes long. So we're going to jump right out of that. We're going to go to an aptly titled scene called Humans Are Messy. This shows off the bad side of Steve Jobs. They're arguing here and he's, he's really in full-blown jerk mode. This is opera, audio. This is audio from the San Francisco workshop. We're going to hear Sarah Coit as Lorene Powell Jobs, Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. 
The view from the top, 's no more intimate relationship in human life than a, than a marriage right I mean this is really such an intimate relationship this is definitely something if you're going to set a, a person's life you're going to have to try to present that marriage in in some way and uh, certainly with Steve Jobs it's, it's a really interesting subject uh, and what they've chosen to do and by they I mean the composer Mason Bates and the Bredis Mark Campbell is to present Lorene Powell Jobs as something of a, of a humanizing redemptive force on Steve Jobs again that's a controversial stance not everyone agrees a lot of people think Steve Jobs went to his grave uh, the same way he lived his life. But it works, I think, narratively for the opera. It, it helps to have that kind of a force in the opera. We just showed off two aspects of their marriage uh, when they first met, all, all the optimism, all the fun, and then much later when, when, when Steve Jobs is being himself and, and, and uh, you know railing against fate, railing against the fact that he can't control things, showing off his bad side. This is audio from the San Francisco workshop that they did before the staging at the Santa Fe Opera. And we heard Sarah Coit as Lorreen Powell Jobs and Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. I'm going to close out with what I think is one of the most well-handled, skillfully handled parts of the opera, and this is actually the wedding of Steve and Lorreen, but it turns into Steve's memorial service, a really kind of interesting, uh, surrealist, uh, really, experience. I mean, where, where you have his wedding, and, and, and they're exchanging vows and, and what you do at a wedding, but then all of a sudden they're all talking about him as if he's gone, and he himself is there, and, he, and he's critiquing the memorial service. He's saying, you put the flowers over there? <laughs> Why would you do that? And, and, and they're talking, oh, Steve, you know, he was always that way. It's a fascinating juxtaposition, uh, you know, the two big moments in anyone's life, but they did it in, in a really, really tasteful way. So let's hear it. This 
This is audio again from San Francisco. And now we're going to hear Wei Wu as Kobun Chino. We're going to hear Sarah Coit again as Lorraine Powell Jobs. And we're going to hear Edward Parks as Steve Jobs. We've gone over this. I don't want Lisa here. I told you it's over.
That's for me one of the most poignant scenes of this opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. There are a lot of great moments. There's a lot of interesting scenes, certainly where Steve Jobs confronts his own mortality. But in this case, there's just something about this decision that the librettist made, that Mark Campbell made here to have this wedding, to go ahead and show the wedding of, of Steve and Lorene. And, and it's a, a fairly typical wedding at first, but then to juxtapose the image of Steve's memorial service over it, it it's, it's kind of creepy. It, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and effective idea and musically I think it works really really well also so I chose to end the program with that today I featured a lot of audio from the revolution of Steve Jobs and uh, we'll have more as soon as we can get it from the Santa Fe Opera it's headed after Santa Fe to San Francisco and uh, again it's, it's controversial it's a different take on what is undoubtedly one of the most pivotal figures of the 20th century Relevant Tones has been produced by Sarah Zwinklis, and additional production help provided by Rebecca Neistat. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm Seth Bostead from the WFMT Radio Network, Chicago.